With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I'm not usually a skeptic of Bitcoin, but for this podcast, I wanted to be as skeptical as possible, so we really covered all the issues. So I have on Omid Malakan, who, first off, he used to work with me back in my hedge fund days from 2002 to 2007. We worked together and we were trading every day. Since then, he's moved on to bigger and better things, helped Citigroup figure out the whole crypto universe. He wrote a book called The Story of the Blockchain. And more recently, he's about to publish a book called Re-Architecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. So he comes on the podcast today and I want to know where Bitcoin and Ethereum are going, where the whole crypto universe is going, and what could stop it or slow it down. So he's, he's very bullish, as am I, but I am as skeptical as possible. And he really answers all my questions. So he conquered my potential bearishness. So here's Omid Malakan. Kids are sort of the reason why gold is dead and crypto is like, like as these kids grow up, they're not going to suddenly go from buying crypto to buying gold. Like that right. would be the most stupid thing in the world. Yeah. There's almost, I feel like an abstract age below which everything that crypto has pioneered, like digital wallets or NFTs makes more sense than whatever came before it. And your book goes into this, you know, I, I like how your book is structured almost as like an evolution of money. And as trust needed to evolve in our various institutions, like initially there was like a king or an emperor or, or a god emperor and we ha were forced to trust them. But now trust is much more fluid and that has ultimately led to Bitcoin and then crypto and Ethereum and all that and everything else. And so I really like how the, how the book is, is structured. It's, it's a better history of money than I think the previous book that was a history of money. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's a bunch of, it's a very popular topic now, in part because what's fun about crypto is it's forced people to actually think about like what is money and what qualifies as money and what's good money. Uh, this is not a topic, even in economics, as you know, like not a lot of people cared about money 20 years ago. Yeah, we just sort of assumed money is money. And then, and then right. you had economists who wondered what the source of inflation was. And then there's issues like what level inflation is good because inflation is not necessarily a bad thing. I was wondering, I wanted to play kind of the skeptic a little bit. Great. Uh, 
and and challenge you on different assumptions. I, I'm bullish on on crypto, but like anybody, I have questions. And and you just brought it up. Like, what is money? Like, why? Like, Bitcoin could do like what twelve transactions per second. You know, why do I need that as money? And also, it's it's right now it's complicated to get Bitcoin. Like, it's it's mm -hmm. it seems easy to people who are already into it, but the average person in in the street doesn't own Bitcoin because it's it's sort of like too hard. Mm -hmm. to get and and that's something that'll be solved over time through technology if crypto continues to evolve but what is money is bitcoin just a store of value does it have some other utility or can you use it for transactions all of the above <laughs> money is a myth that human beings invented because it lets us better organize society and more efficiently conduct commerce right and its evolution over the years is actually like you could best describe it as technology enabling more convenient forms of money. So, for example, people used to use precious metals or lumps of metal, but the problem with a lump of metal is it's not standardized. So now if you're doing a deal with someone and there's like, here's a lump of silver, you have to weigh the silver and make sure it's real silver. And that led to eventually people were like, you know, if we were to standardize this into metal coins, using technologies like a mint, then we can have more efficient commerce. But then there's a trade-off involved because, well, we don't want to have a thousand different coins. We want to have one coin in an economy. So we need to have someone in charge of issuing it like a Roman emperor, which is great for the standardization purpose. But then they're in a position now to abuse their privilege because they can practice seniorage and dilute the content of the coin. So let's talk about that for a second, because mm -hmm. this is a common, this was is a common reason for the development of Bitcoin, the initial development of Bitcoin, and it's a common complaint against the Federal Reserve. But I'm not sure everyone understands it. And the idea is, is that, like we saw in this pandemic, the Federal Reserve, quote unquote, printed something like nine trillion dollars, and that means the dollars in without your permission, whatever dollars you had in your pocket, have less value because. There's more of them. If, there, if there's a if there's a billion cabbage patch dolls, no no one cares. If there's only three, then they become more valuable. Yeah, there's a bunch of characteristics that usually make something good money, and scarcity is arguably the most important one. And with fiat money, which is the money issued by central banks like the Fed, we put a lot of that scarcity in the hands of a committee that decides, like, okay, like they did during the pandemic, we're going to print. I think, I don't remember if it was like 3 trillion or whatever it was. We're going to increase the supply of money significantly because of X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah, I think they ultimately increased the supply of money by something like 50% more than existed. Yeah, it was a big number. And, and the fact that it was not just the Fed, but pretty much every central bank doing the same thing, um, you know, not surprisingly, we're now seeing some of the side effects of that, which is inflation. Uh, what What's really fascinating about Bitcoin, and it's arguably the first thing in history that offers this, is that because the inflation is controlled by a decentralized protocol, it's pre-programmed, it's algorithmic, and it is almost impossible to change. So right now, for example, uh, the protocol is designed that uh, there is a new block, a new batch of transactions created every 10 minutes, and then as the reward for the miner who processes that transaction, the protocol creates six and a quarter Bitcoins. 
and pays it to them. So by 2100 or whatever, there's going to be a maximum of 21 million Bitcoins of which 19 million has already been issued. So it's like, we all know the maximum supply and we all know what the supply is now. And it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be no inflation. If there's high demand for a product, the value of that product will inflate, but monetary style inflation won't exist. Not base money. So it gets a little bit nuanced because people forget that even with fiat money, while central banks create what's called like the base supply, which today we can measure, you just add up the value of the um, all the physical coins out there, plus uh, some amounts that's in the Fed's balance sheet. And you're like, okay, the Fed has only ever created $9 trillion. But there is this money multiplier effect in the private economy uh, where like commercial banks that practice and borrowing and lending, they also synthetically increase the supply of money. And this is actually arguably one of the most confusing things that I try to explain in the book because it took me years to mentally be able to appreciate this too. But there is this strange voodoo where if you say, okay, how many dollars has the Federal Reserve ever created? And you can like go to the Fed's website and look this up, it'll say nine trillion. And then you say, okay, but how many dollars are deposited uh, at banks in you know, people's savings and checking accounts? It's like 25 trillion. And you're like, and you can actually like go downstream and be like, all right, well, if we include money that's sitting in PayPal and in money market funds and stuff, then it's even more. And it's like, wait a minute. So what is the actual supply of dollars out there? What is the money supply? And it's kind of an elusive number because when people borrow and lend money, it magically increases the supply. Right, because if I lend money, then let's say I lend you $100. On my personal balance sheet, I still have that $100. It's just now gone from cash to an asset that Omid owes me. And you now have $100. So by me lending you $100, $200 are in the economy instead of $100. Exactly. And uh, even simpler than that is anybody that has a savings or checking account, like if they think of that as like, I have dollars, but they're in the bank. In reality, you don't have dollars. You have a promise from a bank for dollars, and they've taken some of your dollars and literally loaned them to somebody else. But what's interesting about this dynamic where credit creates more money is it's also true for crypto. So this is one of those things that I feel like Bitcoin people need to become a bit more sophisticated, especially the diehards that quote that $21 million number. There are many places now where you can deposit your Bitcoins and they'll pay you interest because they're taking some of your coins and lending them to somebody else who's levering up or shorting Bitcoin or something. So in Bitcoin also, as the crypto credit economy or the crypto banking system gets built out, measuring the inflation rate becomes a bit more elusive now because it's like, wait a minute, what's the real supply of Bitcoins? Is it what the blockchain tells us, which is equivalent to like the Fed's balance sheet? Or is it what we record in Coinbase and BlockFi? And even like the example that you gave, if you lend me your a Bitcoin, which I would really appreciate, by the way. But you, know, you don't think of yourself as like, I had a Bitcoin, but it's gone in your personal mental model of your balance sheet. You're like, no, I still have a Bitcoin. I just loaned it to Amit and I'm going to get it back with 10% interest in a year. So I'll have even more Bitcoin. But now I have your coin and maybe I'm selling it. So uh, the whole inflation thing will be interesting to watch as crypto becomes more like the traditional monetary system. So, so people don't want to transact with 
crypto that much. I mean, some people do, and they, and and often I feel a, a Bitcoin transaction is often there for publicity purposes, like when a politician takes Bitcoin in salary or an athlete or whatever. And then there's uses like okay, where we want you want to send money to Ukraine. Bitcoin is a, a convenient way to do it as opposed to trying to do it through the banking system. But it's, people say to me, Bitcoin and crypto in general is so volatile. Why would I want to transact with it? Why would I want to sell something with it when it could, the price could cave in half in a, in a month? Yeah, I'd say net-net, that's true enough. That most people that own Bitcoin own it because they think it's going to appreciate in value. Uh, and because of that, they're not going to want to buy uh, coffee with it or something. Um, but that to me is perfectly fine. Like there have been currencies historically where people will use them just as more of a store of value. Like you know, the Swiss franc for a long time would fulfill that function, for example, or gold to some extent. Does or that. gold, right? Um, however, there are nuances to this. Like there are also uh, situations where somebody bought some Bitcoin ten years ago, and now they own a lot of it, so they're rich and they like to spend some of their Bitcoin to. You know, buy a car or buy a house or something. And it's actually if they can find a merchant or seller who's willing to take that directly, it would save them the trouble of, all right, now I have to send my coins to an exchange, sell them for dollars, wire out the dollars, et cetera. So I think we're seeing more and more examples of um, people willing to use Bitcoin as more of just a store of value. Uh, but then you also have things like stable coins, which are just, dollars or fiat money, but they just use this infrastructure. And I'm very bullish on stablecoins becoming uh, the future of all sorts of payments. So with Bitcoin, I sort of agree on the store value. I mean, I do agree on that, but we saw, we're seeing right now in this Ukraine situation that when things are at extreme uncertainty, like, oh, they just bombed a nuclear reactor stocks and crypto tend to fall but gold sort of goes up and and look i am more down on gold than just about anybody but it has been interesting to me i've been saying bitcoin's a store of value and largely during all these different crises we've seen bitcoin act like a store of value except when panic is too much then it falls like stocks i, I had expected more reaction from what's going on in Ukraine and even what's going on in Canada to push up crypto to new highs. And I haven't quite seen it. I think that's a fair critique, but it is relatively early. So I, most people think of something like Bitcoin as, well, is it digital gold? Is it a store of value? Is it a new kind of money? I think it could be all those things. I also think of all the different crypto projects. They're like startup equity. Uh, in that if, if, and you know more than most people about this, in the world of startups, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of volatility, there's a lot of immaturity. What's unique about crypto is that the startup equity has liquidity and price discovery from day one. Uh, you know, if you took like, your average siege state startup and traded st started trading its stock right away, it would probably fluctuate just as wild as cryptocurrencies would do because you haven't yet found your place in the broader ecosystem. So I think Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are on their way to being something. They're not quite there yet. And what happens in the interim is that there are times where it looks like Bitcoin is asking as a correlated risk on asset, right? Like it moves along with the NASDAQ. But 
that's an oversimplification because you go back a few months and there are times where it did the exact opposite. Um, and in fact, one of the assignments I give my students is to go try to put some numbers on this. Like, is Bitcoin a risk-on asset, risk-off asset, or neither? And it turns out that most of them are better analysts than some famous skeptics out there because when they crunch the math, they come back and usually say, you can't tell because if you say, all right, I'm going to measure daily Bitcoin correlation for the last three months, you'll get a very different number than if you say, I'm going to measure weekly correlation for the last year. In part because what we're all doing is taking something that has very high volatility and trying to correlate it with something like gold or stocks, which has relatively low volatility. So I think if you look at it across longer time horizons, um, you're going to see that some of these narratives of Bitcoin being a uh, alternative asset, potentially a risk-off asset, an inflation hedge like gold, etc., are starting to pan out. But like, when when all these sanctions happen on Russia and Ukraine's being invaded and all these bank accounts are being seized in Canada was related to the truck protests, why? Like, let's just take Russia in particular. If I was like a Russian billionaire or millionaire or whatever, I would instantly put all my money into Bitcoin. And we didn't quite see that. That's true. But that goes back to a point you made much earlier. It's still hard for most people to go into and out of crypto, especially if you are trying to do so in large amounts. Uh, and you know, Russia, for example, there are very few exchanges that have markets or where you can trade rubles for Bitcoin in part because I assume it's hard to get access to the Russian banking system. So if you are someone in Russia and you have a lot of rubles, it's very difficult even today for you to try to convert that to Bitcoin. Now, maybe some of these Russian oligarchs have money in dollars or euros and whatnot. Um, then it becomes easier. Uh, but even then, the funny thing everybody forgets is that uh, as if you look at the blockchain as a payment system, it's the most transparent payment system in the history of the world. You, me, and the uh, investigators from OFAC and the FBI can watch every transaction happen in real time, and you collect a bit more data, and you can pretty accurately piece together what someone's doing. So it's not necessarily a given that Bitcoin is actually a useful tool for something like sanctions evasion. Yeah, I guess it's just like the um, that couple who was uh, arrested for a, a potentially the biggest Bitcoin heist ever, or at least laundering it. It was hard for them to launder it because everyone was just looking at the wallet where all the money was put after it was stolen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are Twitter bots that just like tweet out anytime somebody moves any significant amount of value in general, or when specific blockchain addresses associated with some kind of a crime show any activity at all. But your point is, is that, hey, for legit purposes, as a store of value, if I'm nervous about my country's currency um, or nervous about inflation or whatever, just want another spot to put you know, my money, crypto, it, Bitcoin is, is already started being that and it's going to evolve more into that. Yeah, and there are many countries in the world right now where Bitcoin is trading at an all-time high with respect to their domestic currency, just because their domestic currency has been falling in value significantly. Uh, and even against the dollar, if you just compare where most crypto is trading compared to 
a couple of years ago, um, it's they've gone up. And this is not by any means investment advice, but whenever people ask, they point out something about crypto, I ask them compared to what? So for example, if you had dollars in the bank in the last year, um, you lost 78% of your purchasing power. And that's according to US government CPI data. So if in that time, something like a Bitcoin has been flat, it's actually been an effective hedge. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. So then you have countries which are moving completely to crypto, like say El Salvador. Um, but then Mark Cuban brings up the interesting point that, look, they started in dollars and they just converted over to crypto. So it's, it's really just dollars still. Yeah, I am actually far from convinced uh, as to whether what El Salvador did uh, was the right thing. I think it's a fascinating experiment. As someone who is curious about this topic, I'm glad when different people, countries, companies try different things with it because that's how innovation works. Um, the one thing that's interesting to me about switching over or, or you know, saying like, okay, we had dollars as legal tender. Now we will also have Bitcoin as legal tender is that fiat money only exists according to the laws and regulations of the banking system for that country. So dollars, for example, are at the mercy of US banking laws and regulations, which are generally good, right? That's one of the reasons the dollar is the reserve currency is people trust our banking system and the political system that influences our banking system. What's fascinating about Bitcoin is that it's sort of like the first currency ever that comes with its own legal system. And it's a very simplistic legal system, but if you say like, what is the most important thing for any financial system? I'd say, well, it's that people have assurances that things happen as they expect them to, right? Meaning like, I send you a wire in the US for a thousand bucks, we can both be reasonably assured that that money will arrive. Um, that's not the case in many countries in the world. There are many places like in El Salvador that do not have a well-developed financial system or a legal system for a financial system. Uh, if they do have a financial system, there might be a lot of corruption or there might even be things like capital controls. Uh, where you might want to do something with your money, but the government tells the bank that they're not going to let you do it. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is it comes with its own predictable legal system. So I am going to be curious to see if more places where there is a lack of a reliable, trustworthy financial system adopt Bitcoin for certain things because it gives them the kind of assurances that don't exist otherwise. Yeah, and you kind of see this happening semi-organically. Like, on the one hand, there are countries like the U.S., which is going to basically stick with dollars. Maybe they'll move to digital dollars. We'll, we'll see what happens. We don't know. Then there's countries, on the other extreme, there's countries like El Salvador, which are saying, nope, we're accepting Bitcoin, and Bitcoin's our currency, that's it. And then you have countries like Argentina and Iran, which the governments do not want people to switch to Bitcoin, and that even in, that increases the incentive for everybody to switch to Bitcoin. And we see more Bitcoin transactions than ever the day after they make it illegal to do Bitcoin transactions, where you see that the, the population's essentially voting with their feet when they're running into Bitcoin. Yeah. The, and if the anybody Googles per capita adoption of Bitcoin, um, so there are countries that collect the data, but then they adjust them based on things like wealth and population. 
the list is highly surprising. Um, it, it's actually higher in places like, off the top of my head, Vietnam and certain parts of Africa and Argentina for all the reasons that you said. Because whereas in America, you know, you can speculate in Bitcoin, you can play with it, it's kind of a luxury. Uh, in many other parts of the world, it's almost a necessity to try to have a chance to protect your capital. So I think that trend is only going to increase. Why, why do you think that? Because it seems like we're now entering a period where a lot of different national currencies are in trouble. And there's just a lot of inflation everywhere. And what we've seen happen in uh, Turkey, for example, or in Lebanon now, is that the people who got paid in their domestic currency and saved in it are seeing their purchasing power be completely destroyed. If they had had some way to convert some of it to Bitcoin, which is a big if, um, it's not trivial to do so, then they're much better off. Uh, we're also seeing this just global trend with the, let's call it the politicization of banking and payment systems. Uh, where more and more governments are exerting political control over regulated financial institutions to influence how people can access and move their money because it's decentralized, Bitcoin is an alternative and a workaround to all of that. Uh, and while that usually gets portrayed in the press as a negative, like, oh, potentially Putin's going to use it to evade sanctions or the drug cartels are using it, uh, I think people should not lose sight of the fact that the far more pressing global problem is what's happened in countries like Argentina and Venezuela and Turkey and Lebanon, where decent, hardworking, honest people have seen their financial lives ruined by the draconian monetary measures that their government has imposed on them. And so what could be, what could be, you know, let's say somebody says, you know, like Jamie Dimon used to say, oh, crypto's a fad. And now, of course, JP Morgan has, you know, hundreds of people working on crypto-related projects. But what, what or, or Nassim Taleb right now says Bitcoin's a fad, or Charlie Munger calls it a venereal disease. What, <laughs> what could, what steps could, what are they looking at? What do they think could be the end of Bitcoin? I have no idea. Uh, I think, uh, frankly, I feel like a lot of that is just a fear-driven response to something that is A, unfamiliar, B, confusing, and C, threatening. Uh, because uh, I do think digital currencies in aggregate, not just Bitcoin, uh, but then when you have things like stable coins and tokenized securities and whatnot, they will change the structure of our financial system. And uh, most of the people you just listed, like Charlie Munger and Jamie Dimon, have been like the winners from the existing system. Uh, and they're older in age. So I think a lot of their opposition is because perhaps subconsciously, somewhere in the back of their mind, they realize that, boy, this is going to really change things and shake things up. And I'm not a spry young banker anymore. Uh, and I actually think there are many opportunities for the JP Morgans of the world to do all sorts of greatly profitable things with Bitcoin. But it's not a given that they're going to get it right. And now they suddenly have all these crypto native companies that are competing with them in some ways. Uh, so I think it's more of a fear response. And, and But what about Nassim Taleb, who I guess his focus always on any kind of financial asset is how, or any investment categories, how fragile it is. 
and he seems to view Bitcoin as an investable asset class as as fragile. Like in the same way, the stock market might have been considered in 2008. By the way, small story. Do you remember you and I visited John Paulson's hedge fund? I think in 2006, and they presented the whole. We were thinking of investing in them, and they presented the whole situation that you know why the house like housing was at a high then and they said housing is going to collapse and the, and they described how they were betting on it and they described why and how severely it was going to collapse which it didn't do for another couple of years and they and we asked them what's your one thing you're afraid of and they they said we're afraid the banking system will fail so quickly we won't be able to get our money out of it and we left that office and and you said you turned to me and you said man we're screwed <laughs> and and then, by the way, then the interesting thing is, then I called up a bunch of other hedge funds and and described what was going on, and they're like, "Oh, that trade is too crowded. Don't do it." All of those people later claimed to be invested in John Paulson's fund, but they would have denied it then. <laughs> I I do remember that very much. One of many examples of how somehow the three of us ended up in the middle of all sorts of important things back in the day. Actually, I know. My, my favorite thing about that story is you wrote about it in the yeah. FT. And then you quoted me saying, oh, we're all screwed. And then you called me a punk. So <laughs> I, I still I still consider it a great claim to fame that in my young career, I was referred to as a punk in the Financial Times. Right, right. And of course, I was just joking, but punk's a funny word. The K yeah. sound. <laughs> yeah, well, and now I'm, like, I'm a crypto person. So I feel like there's sort of a, you can... Maybe you can track the genesis of how I became a fan of decentralization back to that moment. Yeah, it's true because so so and the reason I bring it up is related to Nassim Taleb is that he saw how fragile the banking system was because of all these derivatives that were piling up. But what does he see in Bitcoin? Why doesn't he give some like using Nassim Taleb again, the fact that it's lasted now 13 years suggests that it's going to last another 13 years. That's one of Nassim Taleb's theories. And so at least another 13 years. And so why does he think it's fragile? It's a good question. I can't speak for him. And I will say, I asked, I'm a big fan of Nassim's work in general. And I think um, crypto is such a great testing ground for so many of his ideas, including anti-fragility uh, and black swans and all of that. Um, and I've corresponded with him on this topic before. He makes some very interesting points about why Bitcoin isn't money. For example, nobody thinks in terms of Bitcoin, which I think is a fascinating argument, right? Like nobody yeah. thinks like my, you know, I'm going to buy this car for 0.000 whatever Bitcoin. Um, to which my response is that's true. Not yet. It's still relatively early. You know, the dollar, for example, um, even in the U.S., other currencies were considered legal tender for something like a hundred years. And originally the dollar was really just a unit of account and it was soft pegged to this popular Spanish currency. And it took two world wars for the dollar to become the established reserve currency that it is. So then 12, 13 years is not a lot of time in that. Uh, and the other counter is I actually think decentralized systems by nature, are a lot more anti-fragile and resilient than centralized ones. And just to give a simple example of that, um, the Bitcoin blockchain, the record of every transaction that has ever happened, 
uh, is preserved by these entities called nodes. A node is just anybody who wants to keep a copy of the ledger and participate in updating it. And there are something like 15,000 different nodes all over the world. There's actually, I have, I run one myself here in my is home. There, are there rewards for that? Like, why would you do it? No, I do it because it's fun and you get to contribute to the community. But most of the nodes are, uh, let's say you were going to build a business, right? You wanted to start your own crypto exchange or data analytics or something. One of the wonderful things about this world is you can have your own pure, fresh, free data. Right? That doesn't exist anywhere else, right? Like in the traditional financial system, there's usually a handful of players who have all the data and they charge a lot of money for it. And they can turn off your access whenever they feel like it, which would be very bad if your business relied on it. But if you well, have look, a what do you mean by data? Like, why would my business rely on data about dollars? If you are any kind of a bank or financial system, right, you have to constantly receive information about who's doing what. So look at something like Swift, right? Swift is actually only a messaging system for payments and correspondent banking, but it is so powerful in the existing financial system that a lot of times when the US government wants to punish a country, an individual, they just knock them off of Swift. Um, that doesn't exist in, so that's a source of fragility, I would argue, to Nassim yeah. right? Or something far more mundane, like I don't know how many data centers Visa has for its credit card network uh, and how, many, how much redundancy they have, but it's not 15,000 copies preserved by all sorts of random companies and people on-prem, in the cloud, all over. So in that sense, I think decentralized systems by nature are more resilient. Like you can knock half of those nodes offline right now, right? Like American and Canadian cloud providers and internet providers could suddenly conspire to shut most of them down and it would have a minimal impact on the operation of the Bitcoin blockchain. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, 
but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The decentralization thing is interesting because I agree with you for a financial system as a whole, decentralization is, that's definitely the prime experiment crypto and Bitcoin are, are implementing. But there are other cases where I want a middleman. I want centralization. You know, like, as you know, I'm uh, an early investor in Filecoin, which is kind of like the decentralized Dropbox or the decentralized Google Drive. And I wrestle with, do people really care if they have a decentralized Dropbox? Like, if I'm a big enterprise, maybe I want Dropbox or even a more sophisticated centralized storage provider. And I don't want to be so decentralized because I don't know where any of my files are. <laughs> Yeah, and the user experience is pretty awful um, of a lot of decentralized things. Like yeah. By virtue of the fact that you don't just have one company that's taking care of everything for you. Uh, so I agree with that. I actually think this idea that some crypto people have that we're going to live in some purely decentralized future where everybody's like controlling all their own assets and everything's Web3, that sounds like a nightmare to me. From a user experience point of view, uh, and like, how's my mother ever going to use any of these things? That's how I think about it. Like, how's how's mom or grandma ever, or grandpa going to ever, like, they're not going to store photos of their grandkids on, you know, some, some you know, blockchain thing when they could just upload it on their Gmail to Google Drive? Right. Um, so I think the future is a hybrid of the two. I think there's a lot of good reasons why you want to decentralize the core, core architecture. So you might have a, a Filecoin serving as the core architecture atop which 
Dropbox and other cloud providers built mm-hmm. their service. And the reason why this is the best of world, both worlds is from a user's perspective, you still get the benefits and efficiencies of dealing with a company and like having someone to call and someone who's investing money in a better UI and stuff. However, because the core infrastructure is decentralized, it's more resilient and you're just going to get more competition. That's interesting. That's like um, comparing Linux, for instance, which is like this open source Unix operating system to many of the companies like Red Hat or V. I don't even know who's still around, but like Red Hat initially, they were like service providers that helped you install Linux and develop applications on top of it and so on. So potentially, you know, like for instance, there's a token render, which uh, decentralizes the idea of rendering you know, complicated 3D or VR uh, graphics. And that needs decentralization because the computing needs are so immense. You want to be able to spread it out among thousands of computers. But then you have companies like Disney doing deals with Render so that they could make products or use Render in a way that they want to, like a, a front end to Render. I, I'm not familiar with Render, but I love the Linux analogy because I, you would know this better than me. I believe the reason why a lot of the core infrastructure of the internet runs on an open source operating system like Linux is it would be a lot more fragile if it was just running on software, proprietary software written by one company, right? Like what if that company goes out of business or... Well, and a, and a great example is AOL versus the internet. I mean, at one point there were more AOL users than web users. But the web, because it was, let's say, decentralization 1.0, ultimately AOL, it's sort of like the difference between good money and bad money. Ultimately, you know, Gresham's law, that bad money kind of goes away and the good money sticks around. Like the web was good internet connections versus the AOL fragile network. Yeah. And I think too often people in crypto focus on the uh, decentralization as being the end-all be-all. I actually think perhaps the most important attribute is this idea of censorship resistance, uh, which is like a fancy way of saying nobody can prevent you from using it, which is also true for the web, right? Like you can get a device and plug it in and you get an IP address and there's nothing in the core protocols of the internet that led one person deny access to another person. And that's also true for Bitcoin and it's true for Filecoin and a lot of other things. And why I think that's important is that it ensures a healthy level of competition among the companies and the traditional intermediaries who will be how most of us access this. Uh, So just a simple example is like, there are many Bitcoin exchanges out there, uh, but unlike stocks where if, I, like, I don't know what it would take for you and I to start a new stock exchange, but it would probably be a nightmare that would require a lot of money and billions of dollars. And ultimately, we might not succeed because we're at the whims of somebody giving us a license to run a stock exchange. Right. right. That's not the case for Bitcoin. So from an innovation point of view, uh, the fact that anybody can start a Bitcoin exchange tomorrow leads to more competition. It also means the existing exchanges are going to be more dynamic and they're going to care more about their clients because they won't want to lose them. And that I think in the future, that's going to be true for everything, right? Like you and I will access Filecoin through some company, but then that company will provide a better service because they understand that any other company could build on top of Filecoin too. Yeah, interesting. So they're going to use Filecoin as kind of the backbone of their service because it's better, 
but we don't have to deal with, oh gosh, how do I get my assets off of Bob? By the <laughs> way, there's apparently there's like 7 million NFTs stored on, on Filecoin. So this is one of my problems a little bit with crypto. It's not a problem, but I don't like it when all the examples I see are crypto tokens being used to do some service for other crypto tokens. <laughs> so like when all DeFi does is allow you to trade crypto for other cryptos, it's just this like self-propelling thing that, you know, it, it has a Ponzi-ish feel when that happens, but we are starting to see real world use cases. And maybe we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. I want to, I want to finish with Bitcoin for a second by asking you, what's the next steps? Like, when are we going to see, what's your checklist for how this is going to get more adopted and higher price, obviously. So there's two things I think that are going to be very important in the, say, the rest of this year. One is um, what central banks are going to do as far as the fight against inflation is concerned. Uh, and that's a nuanced discussion because there are people who will tell you like, well, you, should, you don't need to own Bitcoin anymore because the Fed's going to be raising rates. Um, and it was like, this was store value was great. Two years ago, pandemic happened, all that money printing, but now we're headed in the opposite direction. Uh, and they're probably right. I mean, some one of, part of the reason why Bitcoin is probably trading at like 50% of where it was last year is discounting some of that. Okay, but let me ask you about that too. Yeah. Like interest rates are at zero, basically. Yeah. And let's say they do hypothetically six hikes, which would be extreme for them. It brings you to a percent and a half a federal interest rate, or maybe two percent, if some of the hikes are a little bigger. Okay, in order to stop inflation, or, or you know, other than organically stop it because demand goes down, uh, you kind of have to raise. What's going to convince two percent savings uh, interest rate on your savings account is not going to convince you to not buy a house or invest in stocks or whatever? Like, what do they think they're going to do by raising rates just two percent? It seems like just a joke. I think that's a great point because ultimately it's not the absolute numbers that matter. It's the relative numbers that matter in that if in the next 12 months you can earn 2% on your savings, but we have 8% inflation, well, you lost 6% of your purchasing power. So you actually more eloquently made a point that I've been trying to make to people that what matters going forward is not whether central banks tighten policy, which they will, it's will they tighten policy as much as we've seen inflation accelerate, especially in light of what just happened with Ukraine and Russia. My bet is they can't. I think there's yeah. just too much of the economy is dependent on low interest rates now. Um, so I think that's going to be a bullish dynamic that real rates are still going to be deeply negative, even in an environment where the Fed and other central banks are raising rates. So I think that's one thing. Yeah, so that gets rid of the, the you know, yes, there could be some psychological uncertainty because we're in a raising rates environment and people don't know what it means, but ultimately that will go away because it's not going to have that much effect. And if that was holding crypto back, crypto will move forward. That's right. Uh, and, by, and by crypto, we mean specifically Bitcoin because, as this case. you know, different coins have different use cases. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think is happening is, is that the Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, however much deserved, is a sea change in the nature of money. And I know that that might sound hyperbolic, but if you literally think back to like the existing world order, uh, the post-Bretton Woods world order, 
where once the U.S. and others left the gold standard, everybody sort of like had this tacit understanding that most central banks would save in dollars and a lot of international trade would be in dollars, often among two countries that have their own currencies uh, and in trade that has nothing to do with America. Um, and then there's things like the so-called petrodollar system where there is this like implicit understanding that the U.S. military will protect various unsavory regimes around the world and we will look away from the fact that they're very illiberal and undemocratic so long as they price their commodities in dollars. Um, I think that's all going to have to change now because of the radical nature of the financial response to Russia. Yeah. So, so what if, though, we get into a scenario five years out where Russia and China are one complete ecosystem of money. They have their own SWIFT. They have their own banking system. Maybe they have some deals with their currencies. They're, they're the primary trading partners with each other. Uh, and then there's the U.S. and the EU. And then everybody, uh, and even South America. And then everybody carves up like Africa, India, and so on. So so then is is if the world's so divided, but comfortably divided, is that a scenario that could hurt? Bitcoin, for instance? No, I actually think that scenario significantly helps Bitcoin because one, um, these different islands of geopolitical affiliation are still going to want to transact with each other. It's not like we're going to have zero trade now. Uh, you know, the US and China are still heavily tied together economically. The question that's going to be raised now is what currency do they do it in? Because in the scenario that you described, we're not going to want rubles or renminbi. Um, they're not going to want dollars, especially not after they saw what just happened, that uh, the West effectively confiscated Russia's foreign exchange reserves. Um, there's gold, but the problem with gold is like you have to actually like put it on a ship and ship it somewhere. It's, it's rare yeah. where the money you use is harder to transport than the goods and services that you're using it to pay for. So I think that niche- That's a great gets, quote. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, and this is the thing. Whenever people are like, Bitcoin is digital gold, I'm like, it's digital gold that comes with its own brand spanking you instant global digital payment system. Right? That's a lot more useful than gold in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so I think Bitcoin becomes not the global- uh, reserve currency because that has its own challenges, but it becomes something that eventually many governments and central banks are going to at least want to hold some of because since it's decentralized, then by nature it is apolitical, which means that even if you're being sanctioned, you're at war with someone, they're confiscating your bank accounts and whatever, if you need to make a payment to another government or central bank in a pinch, you can always do it on the blockchain. But one thing about being a central bank, at least a U.S. central bank that's great, is that when you have a financial crisis, like let's say the beginning of COVID or in 2008, 2009, you could print money to basically bail yourself out of your crisis. If we were to switch completely to Bitcoin, we wouldn't have that solution. Some people say that's a curse rather than a solution, but regardless, we wouldn't. that's not a power that any government wants to give up if they have it. Agreed. And actually, I probably don't think governments should, because this is the other thing that 
Bitcoin people, a lot of which are like these hardcore gold bug people, they don't spend enough time thinking about the limitations of using a pure hard currency. Uh, like the fact that you're now completely a slave to the economic cycle and booms and busts, and there's literally nothing your government can do. Um, but the example that you gave about the US government, why we would want to retain the right to print dollars, that's very good for the US government. Arguably, it's bad for everybody else. Absolutely, because, because we borrow as much money as possible and then we def then we inflate the value of, of the dollar so we don't have to pay back as much. Right. So again, this existing world order where central banks and governments have kept foreign reserves in a little bit of gold, mostly dollars, the dollar accounts for something like 60% of global reserve currencies and then some euros and Swiss francs and other things. I think what makes sense now is this might take a decade, but for more of these central banks to be like, you know what, we should maybe just put 2% of our reserves in Bitcoin or 5% of our reserves in Bitcoin. The irony of that, though, is if it were to come true, there's literally not enough Bitcoin in the world today. Uh, the market cap of all the Bitcoins in existence is currently something like 700 billion, I think. That's about the size of Russia's foreign exchange reserves. So if my scenario comes true, uh, and again, this is not investment advice, but the only way it could come true is Bitcoin would have to appreciate exponentially to become large enough for it to be something that government scale and central bank scale adoption could take place. And you could foresee potentially a tipping point where let's say there's even rumors that China is going to sell their trillion dollars worth of dollars that could make other governments think, oh, I better sell my dollars first. And there could be essentially a, a, a rush. And then where do they put their, their, their money that they raise by selling off their dollars? They have to put it somewhere. They're going to put it in gold or stocks or crypto or something. Yeah, and stocks are tough because they, they, they could put them in domestic stocks. But if they put them in foreign stocks, then they're making themselves vulnerable to the same kinds of uh, geopolitical-driven financial intervention. Um, so yeah, they're actually not any good options. Even Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not a good option today. I think it could evolve to being a viable option. Uh, but go back to what we were saying earlier. Bitcoin is the only money that comes with its own fairly reliable legal system. And what we're seeing now increasingly is that even countries like the US and before the US, the UK that had dominant reserve currencies because it was perceived that their legal system was predictable are becoming increasingly less predictable. So that increases the appeal of the only kind of money that is not subject to that kind of politicization. And so let's talk about Ethereum for a second, because Ethereum, while it's called a cryptocurrency, is also really more of a software platform. There's competitors to it like Solana and Cardano, but you probably know the statistics better than I do. Most crypto projects being worked on, like 95% are being worked on on top of Ethereum. I don't know what the percentages is. Do you know? I don't. It's hard to measure projects being worked on, but if you look at statistics like um, fees, because the fees that people pay, the minor fees to use any blockchain is a proxy for adoption. On Ethereum, there are uh, you know, multiple orders of magnitude higher than most of the other competitors, uh, which some people will say, well, that's because Ethereum is really expensive. 
To which I'm like, right, and Fifth Avenue real estate is also very expensive. The fact that people pay for it shows that that's where they think the value is. So yeah, Ethereum is where the vast majority of traction as far as a layer one blockchain platform is concerned. And and are you? What's your stance on Ethereum versus like some of these other platforms or versus Bitcoin? Like, what's your what's your overall feeling on Ethereum? Uh, so ironically, technologically, it is by far the worst, just because it was the first. So I think most of the other uh, alternative smart contract token platforms are technologically much better than Ethereum because they learned from Ethereum's mistakes. However, um, as I'm sure you know, there is this well-established thing in technology and innovation that the best tech often does not win. It's the first tech that's good enough that goes mainstream that wins. And my working hypothesis is that Ethereum is now at that point where it's become so much of a standard. There are so many people using it, projects building on top of it, that it's going to be very difficult for the other competing platforms, even though they might be technically superior, to catch up. Yeah, because for instance, if you want to buy and sell crypto on a decentralized exchange, pretty much your only choice is to convert your dollars into Ethereum, go on to an Ethereum-powered exchange, and that has the full range of choices of cryptos you could buy. I mean, 95% of the DeFi exchanges are Ethereum-powered. Yeah, and people, because this is all open source and decentralized, people have literally like copied and pasted the smart contract code of those exchanges and say, oh, well, we now have automated market makers on Avalanche and Solana and wherever. But they just, they don't have the user base. They don't have the traction. They also don't have the collateral base because in DeFi, people are trading and borrowing and lending, but you need a reference asset to do that against. So if you're doing it against ETH, there's, I don't remember the market cap of Ethereum, but it's like 300 something. There's hundreds yeah. of billions of dollars worth of it that you can be like, I'm going to borrow against this. I'm going to trade it to buy some other coin. Then you go down to these other uh smaller platforms and you're like oh well there's only 20 billion worth of value here here's one skeptical question why do we need a crypto programming environment at all like for instance everyone says oh you could put your estate in escrow like you can make wills in using ethereum now oh i was able to make wills before <laughs> like <laughs> oh it's going to replace the whole legal system why does the legal system necessarily need like you still need a lawyer to keep track of an escrow and and you know what's the big deal so it's actually it's not that i agree with you um the the, the bigger heavier more important life decisions that we all make i think they benefit from the sort of the messiness of our very human dumb contract based legal system because there's room to maneuver there yeah. Uh, right. Like you wouldn't want to put your will and estate on the blockchain and then, oh, wait, there was a bug in the code and now all my money was just sent to somebody else and it's gone forever and I can't get it back. However, why I think a smart contract platform like Ethereum is appealing is that's not 99% of our lives. 99% of our lives are these like super mundane financial interactions where there are some conditions that trigger an event, right? So like I own a bond and it's the first day of the month, so I should earn interest. Or I have some kind of insurance and it rains so much, so I should get paid a claim. 
uh, I bet on the Super Bowl and my team won, so I should get paid. And all of that activity today happens in these centralized scenarios where you're almost relying on the goodwill of a company or an individual to do what they're supposed to. Now, there are laws and regulations, um, there are contractual obligations, uh, they might actually have a conscience about it, but none of these things like give you a guarantee. And when I look at it, I'm like, no, you own the bond, you should get paid interest, always and forever, never in question. That's where I think something like a smart contract, which is a terrible name because smart contracts are not the blockchain version of a legal contract. Smart contracts are just um, conditional payments or transfers of value where you can write the conditions in code and then they're executed in decentralized fashion by miners. So a smart contract is actually the first engagement in history where everybody's guaranteed to be satisfied by the outcome, assuming that they agree on the code. And I actually think if you look at lots of lots of financial interaction, right? Like what is an options contract, right? It's if this, then that. Like if I want to call on Apple, it's if on this day, Apple stock is trading above the strike price of 200, then I get paid X dollars, right? That's the kind of thing to me, it's a perfect candidate for uh, automated uh, automation on a blockchain because today it's like, Yes, there are exchanges that are heavily regulated, and if they don't do what they're supposed to, then the government will punish them and blah, blah, blah. But why even leave it up to chance, right? Right. And let's take it one step further, like like uh, securitizing uh, some sort of cash flow. Like Remember the Bowie bonds? David Bowie yeah. borrowed money versus his the royalties of some of his albums over the next X number of years. And he borrowed like $700 million and, and investors in the bond would get some percentage of his royalties over the next 10 years. And they all did very well. And then he paid back the seven. It worked. And, and many other musicians have done it since then. It seems like that's a perfect use for smart contracts slash Ethereum slash crypto. Do we need it? Does it make it better? The current system? Yeah. I think, and, and the Bowie bond is actually, it's an interesting example. I would admit, let's take an even simple example, which is the payment of royalties in, music and artistic endeavors yeah there's so many in, uh, industries now where like money that comes in goes to some black confusing black box that nobody seems to have a good handle on and then after like 90 days someone's like okay so and so performer here's your check for x amount of dollars and there's no traceability there's very little accountability because when stuff happens inside a black box there's a lot of room for people to make mistakes and a lot of room for abuse. So that's the kind of thing where I'm like, no, if there was an exact formula, which there often is, that, okay, for every dollar that comes in, 10 cents goes to the record label. One cent goes to whoever designed the art. 25 cents go to the musician. That's the kind of use case that I think not only should be automated, but should be automated in a fashion that in crypto land we call trustless. And something that's trustless means that you don't need to trust anybody, but you can trust the outcome. Hmm. Okay, so what what do you think is the prospects uh, short term, long term for Ethereum? What's what's the next steps? Uh, well, currently the big next step for Ethereum is these major upgrades that it is undergoing to try to increase capacity because it is highly capacity constrained. Um, and it's migrating to proof of stake and then eventually something called sharding, uh, which people don't need to understand any of that. Just know that 
There are people like me who would argue that a substantial portion of different kinds of value transfers and financial transactions should happen on a platform like Ethereum. However, as designed today, it can't even handle 1% of what that number would be if everybody on the planet is doing things on the blockchain. Uh, and I think the actually the ultimate solution to that is what's being developed now. There are these uh, so-called layer two um, platforms where ironically, again, the crypto world ends up looking more and more like the traditional financial system in some ways, and that it becomes hierarchical. And, uh, you know, just like when banks need to send billions of dollars to each other, they use the Federal Reserve's payment system, Fedwire. But then you and I don't get access to that. And we don't need access to that because it's kind of overkill. If I need to send you five bucks, I can just use Venmo. And eventually all of the Venmo payments and credit card payments and ACH payments get netted down and batched together and settled by one bank sending money to a few other banks through the Federal Reserve. So I think for platforms like Ethereum, the future will be that there are all these different layer twos and maybe even layer threes. And there's one we're using for DeFi. There's maybe one we're using for simple payments, NFTs, et cetera. But then eventually those things reconcile themselves to layer one. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMSS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? 
But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Do you think with the changes they're making now, like to proof of stake, to eventually sharding, to burning, to reduce the supply and all these changes they're making, do you think we're going to suddenly see a tipping point for Ethereum? Uh, yeah, I think so. The transition to proof of stake actually in of itself does not impact scaling and fees at all. Although although it, imp it impacts the argument against Bitcoin on uh, how proof of work uses too much electricity. Yes, which that argument will probably now be amplified given what's happening with energy prices. So yeah. There's that benefit. It is risky moving to proof of stake. So uh, it's a, it, it needs to go well. If it doesn't go well, I think that would be very bad for both the platform and the price of its coin. But other than that, I think the big thing is we want to see, there are already multiple layer twos built on Ethereum. We want to see them grow in adoption and thrive. And they're not very user-friendly yet. We want to see them become more user-friendly. If that starts to take off, then not only are we going to see a lot more adoption for things like NFTs and stable coins and DeFi, but it also invalidates the uh, the argument for these alternative Ethereum competitors. Yeah. So, so uh, what do you think will be the first real world use case that really goes on fire? with 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 these things let's say with ethereum uh well you could argue nfts are currently that yeah um, right just and i to be fair i did not see it coming even though in my first book i opened it by talking about what happened to the music industry because of napster and the lack of digital scarcity that bitcoin solved but it's just the, the extent to which this nft thing in the last year has energized people and the art the artistic community and collectibles i actually feel like nfts have done more for crypto adoption than anything since bitcoin itself hmm. um just because i meet so many people that are excited about like oh i just bought my first nft and i never even owned crypto and, and i had to learn how to use something called a wallet and it was really confusing but i got through it because i really wanted that jpeg or something like that so i think that is sort of a killer product. And it's the kind of thing you can only have on a blockchain. Uh, the other thing is uh, not to be underrated is stable coins. I actually think they are such a superior payment instrument for fiat currency. Uh, I was reminded of this just this week. I had to send some wire transfers. Have you had to send the wire recently, James? Yeah, and it's always painful. And then your money 
for like 12 hours, your money just disappears. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's 4.01 p.m. on a Friday. So your money's not going to get there till potentially Tuesday. And it's like, wait, it's the year 22. Like I can order a couch on Amazon and it'll be here tomorrow. How is yeah. it that money, which is just data inside different ledgers, takes three days and I have to send you a fax. I don't have a fax machine, so I have to take a picture of a piece of paper that I filled out. Um, it's just so antiquated that I think this ability that like I actually have a wallet on my smartphone that I have some stable coins on it. And you just need an address and you click do, do, do and send and you might pay a little bit of a fee. Um, and the payments industry, most people don't know this, but like the payments industry is one of the most fastest growing, most profitable industries on earth. If you think about like Visa, MasterCard, Square, Venmo, the payment banks, etc., their revenues are everybody else's cost. Because everything that we do, and they're good at hiding it. So like, oh, I get to use a credit card, it's free, and I get rewards. Yeah, but the coffee shop you just bought something from just paid a 3% fee. And if their margins are like 15%, then it's like, well, there goes a good chunk of that. Uh, so to paraphrase what Jeff Bezos said, that when he says like, your profit margin or my opportunity about Amazon, I think the payments industry's profit margins which is trillions of dollars a year, is the opportunity for um, stable coins to really become this disruptive force in payments. And then you do need something to kind of tie it all together. Like, let's say I'm paying you in, you know, uh, pesos and, you know, or you're paying me in dollars, as opposed to going through a million central banks and the SWIFT system, it's just one wallet it's basically just you're talking about three wallets like your 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 pesos go into uh the coin of whatever the processing system is then goes into my wallet which gets it gets converted into my stable coin yeah uh and there are already sort of like centralized wallet providers that do this for you and that's essentially uh, a currency exchange yeah uh, and it, it's it's there's also there are stablecoin for stablecoin markets in DeFi, uh, where it's like an FX market, but instead of it being something that banks run, it's decentralized, and you have like random people who are like, I have some pesos lying around, or I don't know if there are many peso stablecoins, but they're coming, right? It's mostly dollars. We're also seeing like Swiss francs and Singaporean dollars and a few others, but I think in five years that infrastructure where you're now combining the decentralized transfer of fiat currency with the decentralized exchange of fiat currency is going to be a big deal in part because there's so much money and inefficiency today lost to the old way of doing things that there is a great reason for the rest of society to figure out how to use this crypto version. And I think I already answered this question earlier, a few minutes earlier, but if everybody, if every country switches to a, a crypto stable coin, does that have a negative impact on Bitcoin or Ethereum? So you were probably referring to a central bank digital currency. Yeah. Yeah. Which is different. Stable coins today uh, are sort of an extension of the, mostly an extension of the banking system. Most of them are designed that someone takes like a million dollars, puts it at a bank, then issues a million tokens and says you can always redeem them for a dollar. 
Um, there is this idea, though, that if that's appealing, then shouldn't central banks be the ones that digitize their own money? In part because the setup that I just explained has risk, right? Like, what if, what if the bank fails, or what if whoever issued the stablecoin is lying? They didn't put a million dollars; they only put five hundred thousand dollars. However, if the Fed comes out and says, like, here's a token on some blockchain and it's a dollar, uh, it's just as much of a dollar as a dollar bill is a dollar. And um, most central banks are now looking into this. Some are much further ahead than others, mainly China is already piloting its CBDC. Europe has committed to trying to roll one out in the next four or five years. Um, so this is a question that gets asked all the time. Is that a potential competitor to Bitcoin? I do not think so. In fact, I think that's a great enabler of Bitcoin for two reasons. One, it sort of validates this idea that digitally native money is superior to uh, what we have today, which is mostly analog money. And I put I put like even a Venmo in the example of analog money, because even though it's mobile app enabled and I use it on my phone, it's the same exact architecture that's existed for over 100 years. They just do it in the cloud. So it's sort of like a halfway solution. Um, so CBDCs, I think, really like validate that the way crypto works is appealing. Um, and to the sort of untold reason why many central banks want to issue CBDCs is because they could really take advantage of the programmability of digital money. So the same smart contracts that we talked about earlier that exist in Ethereum, the Fed could issue digital dollars on its own blockchain uh, and have them be fully programmable, which you know they advertise that as like, well, the appeal of that would be uh, if we want to send people stimulus money like we did during the pandemic and we want them to spend it, we don't want them to save it, uh, then we can program the money that like you have a month to spend it, otherwise it's going to disappear. Uh, or if it's a policy thing and like, oh, we want negative interest rates. Well, they can just program your money to disappear. Um, all of that, the, the increased malleability of fiat money that CBDCs enable, I think makes a very bullish argument for why people will want to hedge by owning decentralized money like Bitcoin that's not going to have any of those things. And and for Ethereum, it seems like if everything is kind of on a crypto platform, it still has to there still has to be software. And again, Ethereum being used as software rather than currency is useful. The more digital central bank currencies there are, yeah, I it, it's even possible. So far, the CBDC designs that are out there, um, they involve the central bank setting up its own infrastructure, um, and and the ones that are proposed that are kind of like blockchain-y in some ways uh, would still be the central bank saying, okay, we're going to partner with a bunch of banks and payment providers. We're going to deploy a new blockchain network that's only for our digital currency. Uh, but it's also possible that a central bank could say, no, you know what? We're just going to issue our money on a platform like Ethereum. And so from your kind of perspective, like you've, had opportunities to talk to large institutions who are buying and selling crypto or trying to figure out what to do. What are you, what are you seeing? What's the trend? Are 
countries stockpiling or companies stockpiling? Are they buying Ethereum? Are they buying altcoins? Are they buying Bitcoin? Like what, what have you actually seen? So uh, last year we saw the wave of the first real amounts of institutional money coming into crypto because crypto is this very rare financial product that began as a retail phenomenon and is now being embraced by institutions. Most things like ETFs, for example, went in the opposite direction. And the institutional money that started coming, first they went to Bitcoin. And it's still way early, I should say. Like the vast majority of institutional capital in the world has no exposure to crypto whatsoever. Um, some of it went into Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of uh, the investors were actually scared of buying the coins themselves. Uh, either because they were unsure about the regulatory clarity. There are actually many headaches for like a pension fund wanting to own Bitcoin. There is a question of like, where do they buy it? Because they only want to deal with regulated institutions. How do they store it? You're not going to have like the manager of the pension fund walking around with like a billion dollars of Bitcoin on a smartphone. Um, and then like, how do they account for it? Taxes, etc. For that reason, a lot of the institutional money has actually bypassed the liquid coins and gone the venture capital route. So we've seen billions of dollars flow into VC funds that invest in crypto-related startups. Um, and then some of the more pioneering players have been dabbling with things like Ethereum. Uh, and the next thing I think is um, institutional money looking to get involved in staking and DeFi. Yeah, it's interesting. What about countries? We have not heard of a country do anything yet. I'm actually waiting. I think I'll go out on a limb and I, I will say at some point this year, some small country will announce that they have taken some small amount of Bitcoin and added it to their foreign exchange reserves. Uh, and I know it sounds like I'm hedging because I'm saying a small country and a small amount, but that's still a sea change. If you go back five years and you tell most people, even the biggest diehard Bitcoin believers that this would happen in 2022, I think they would be shocked. You know, why don't, why don't you run a crypto hedge fund? You should do that. <laughs> well, you know the I hedge fund business. Uh, you know, the, uh, my first uh, or my second, I guess, career, after we worked together, I made a run at actually being a trader. And mm -hmm. I learned two things. One, I'm not good at being a trader. Uh, and two, I don't necessarily enjoy being a trader. Yeah, trading sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most painful experience because it's not like it's one thing if like you're a competitor in a sport, like let's say tennis or whatever. Okay. You lose some games and that's painful, but at least it's fun. You're playing tennis, you're playing a game. Trading is none of the fun, <laughs> except when you make money, it's, it's fun, but not like all the endorphins and stuff that you get from playing a game and, or a sport. And it's all the downside, maybe even more downside emotionally. Yeah. And it's like the only job where you can spend a week working a hundred hours. And at the end of it, be like, man, I would have been so much better off if I just I would have been richer if I just took $50,000 out of the bank and went on vacation and just blew it all because I worked 100 hours and I ended up losing twice that. Yeah. Oh, God. Brings back memories. So, <laughs> yeah. um, 
Omid Malakan, author of Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets and Platforms. Once again, by the way, it was good updating and seeing you and come back anytime you want and let's keep talking crypto. I, have, I actually have a million more questions, but I'll, we'll, we'll do a part two at some point. I want to get in the weeds of some more real world use cases that I can foresee happening. Like it seems like Ethereum is going to be great at, or, or level two or level three, whatever is going to be great at creating tons of new alternative investing categories, which mm. I don't even think we've begun to, we maybe have started to see it in collectibles, like fractional ownership of collectibles. And maybe we're starting to see it in royalty streams, but I think it's just the beginning of securitizing everything you have basically. So, uh, so I look forward to talking to you again about this, but, uh, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. It's it good seeing you. It's great seeing you. Thank you for having me. And, uh, I would love to come back and continue the conversation. Excellent. Mm -hmm.